I'm uh, right now in the middle of a big change uh, in, in gear. I have been thinking the last uh, four years or five years all about the history of science and philosophy of science, uh, the Vienna Circle, the influence of Albert Einstein and all this. But now I'm getting back to evolutionary game theory and to the theory of the evolution of cooperation and the social contract and how the social contract can be subverted by corruption. That's what interests me most currently, so the evolution, if you like, of corruption and how it is a wicked problem, wicked in the technical sense of socio sociologists, that it's not something that will go away. You can reduce it, but as soon as you stop your efforts, it comes back again. And uh, of course, there are very many uh, sides to corruption, but everybody seems now to agree that it is a very important problem. There was a Gallup uh, poll recently where people were asked what is the problem number one in today's world. And you would think maybe climate change or overpopulation or whatever. But it turned out the majority said it's corruption. So it is really a problem that is affecting us deeply. There are so many different types of corruption. But the official definition is more or less the misuse of public trust for private means. And this need not be uh, by state officials. It could be also by CEOs or by managers of non-governmental organization or by a soccer referee for that matter or so, but it is always the misuse for private means. And uh, of course this goes in, in very many different ways, for instance this pork barreling, you have this wonderful expression in the United States, or embezzlement of funds and so on. But I am mostly interested in the effect of bribery upon uh, the judiciary system. So if this breaks down, if the trust in contracts breaks down, then economy breaks down because uh, trust is really the, the fuel of economy. And you see this very, uh, there are uh, staggering statistics actually how the economic welfare of a, of a state is closely related to the corruption perception index. There are, every year there are uh, statistics about corruption published, for instance, by Transparency International or other such non-governmental organization. And it is truly astonishing how close this uh, gradient between the different uh, countries on the corruption level agrees uh, with uh, the gradient in, in uh, well uh, welfare in the uh, household income, or things like this. So uh, this, this paralyzing effect of this type of corruption upon the economy is something that is, I think, extremely interesting. Lots of economists are now turning their interest to that, uh, for which is new because uh, I think in the 70s there was Nobel Prize winning uh, Gunnar Myrdal, I think, an economist who said that 
corruption is practically taboo as a research top topic in economy. This has well changed in the, in the decades uh, since. Uh, it has become a very interesting uh, topic for law students, for students of economy, sociologists, historians, of course, because corruption has always been with us. And so this is now a booming field. And I would like to approach this with evolutionary game theory. This uh, evolutionary uh, game theory has a, has a long tradition for, for many decades. And uh, I have uh, witnessed it, uh, its development practically for the, from the beginning. And some of the most important pioneers there were, for instance, Robert Axelrod and uh, John Maynard Smith. And in particular, Axel wrote already in the late 70s, wrote a truly seminal book on, uh, he called it the evolution of cooperation. It was one aspect. It was the iterated prisoner's dilemma game where he showed that there is a way out of the social dilemma, which is based on reciprocity. And uh, this uh, uh, surprised economists and in particular game theoreticians Enormously, so I thought they had figured out that this was a social trap one could not easily get out. But he showed that by viewing it in the context of a population where people learn from each other, where the social learning imitates whatever type of behavior is currently the best, you can place it into a context where uh, cooperative strategies like, for instance, tit for tat based on reciprocation, can evolve. This was really so the first impetus for a huge amount of work by many other people too, uh, for instance Martin Novak and uh, uh, many others on uh, the, the evolutionary game theory. And after some time of theoretizing and playing with computer models, the economists started making even experiments with real life agents, usually undergraduate students or so, playing for real money. And uh, this uh, experimental economics was also something that has developed in the last two or three decades uh, tremendously. It is now a blooming field, behavioral economics. And uh, it's, uh, it's extremely interesting to, to watch this and to see the connection between the theoretical models in evolutionary game, which are essentially mathematical or sometimes agent-based modeling models, and between the experiments which are closer and closer to uh, global studies of uh, anthropological studies, one can say, of the cultural effects uh, upon economic behavior. So, uh, well, I was, uh, I'm a mathematician from the University of Vienna and the first topics that interested me were on uh, the tradition of Boltzmann on statistical mechanics and uh, so mass action kinetics and uh, physical uh, problems. And uh, then uh, very soon uh, I found that uh, extremely interesting problems uh, involving ensembles of beings uh, where in, in biology, in population biology, 
whether this is population ecology or population genetics or even animal behavior. It always concerns large populations of interacting agents and in biology particularly interesting uh, questions arose because these interacting agents could change their behavior in contrast to what uh, physical entities are doing. And so uh, I started working, uh, applying mathematical models to uh, population ecology and genetics and so on. And then uh, I had, uh, just when I gave my very first talk, actually on Robert Eckelrod's book on the evolution of cooperation, I noticed a student sitting in the front row who really was starting to glow. His uh, eyes were <laughs> getting larger and larger. And finally, I found that I was talking only to him. And uh, this was my first uh, introduction to Martin Novak, who has really a magnetic personality. And uh, I hijacked him, more or less, from his uh, former thesis advisor. And he wrote his thesis on the prisoner's dilemma, the iterated prisoner's dilemma, with me. And uh, then, uh, well, uh, this was really, he was not the only uh, brilliant student I had, but the one who was really the most mind-opening for me. He went uh, as a postdoc then to uh, Bob May in Oxford, and then he went to, to uh, Princeton, and then uh, to Harvard, where he still is. But uh, uh, his, his uh, topics uh, he was applying, uh, the methods he had learned, to more and more uh, diverse uh, topics. They usually had to do with uh, cooperation. He applied it, for instance, to the evolution of language. Communication is, of course, a phenomenon of, of cooperation. And he wrote many very important uh, papers on the theory of signaling and the evolution of language. And also, pr fairly early on, he uh, hit upon the evolution of cancer, because uh, if you talk and think about cooperation, the one big problem is always the problem of free riders. They cause the social dilemmas, the social trap, because uh, selfish free riders are subverting cooperation. Everyone would agree that cooperating is usually a good thing, but uh, it is even better to exploit the other guy, to free ride on his efforts. And how can you curb this tendency? And uh, this problem is a huge problem in uh, all types of societies, of course, particularly in human societies, but even in societies of cells within an organism, because these cells have somehow to uh, synchronize as a multiplication and so on. When there are suddenly mutant cells who do not care about the synchronization but just uh, reproduce as fast as they can, uh, selfishly under quote unquote, uh, then uh, uh, the organism has a problem. And so uh, this uh, uh, cancer is a phenomenon of free riding of cells uh, and subverting the welfare of whole organisms. And therefore this is also a particularly interesting application. Uh, Martin Novak works a lot with biologists and with people in medical research and uh, there is a huge uh, amount of papers published there and is a word by itself 
and I was unable to follow him into this world. Uh, it is just too much is going on there. But so the basic ideas are still the same one that we picked up from Axelrod's book. <laughs> These are ideas about cooperation and how to get rid or at least how to reduce the importance of free riders, of defectors or exploiters. Yes, cooperation is so obviously the secret of success of, uh, of the human species. And uh, one of the reasons is uh, that, uh, for instance, one of the reasons is reciprocation. And uh, tit for tat and other um, strategies for sustaining cooperation in a repeated interaction between two players. Uh, if you do not have these repeated interactions, you have to look for, for different um, mechanisms to support cooperation. One of them would be indirect reciprocity. So this works even if uh, the two people, the two players, uh, meet only once. This works provided they can have some information about each other, which means that it works if the players have some reputation that can be exceeded by the other players. And then it's quite obvious that someone with a good reputation, you are inclined to trust that person and to collaborate with them. And someone with a bad reputation, you either uh, decline the interaction or you tr try even to, to exploit that uh, person, which is a bad person, bad under quotes again, because it bad in the in a technical sense of not cooperating in this particular type of interaction. Uh, but this um, direct and indirect reciprocation, which has a huge importance, for instance, eBay is based on uh, reputation. And uh, this uh, the feedback forum of eBay is a secret of its success. And it means essentially that everyone who wants to interact uh, via eBay has a, a record and this record can be, uh, uh, can be laid open to everyone who is interested in collaborating. So uh, nowadays, uh, of course, uh, all these internet uh, uh, interactions are based on uh, reputation and uh, reputation plays a very important role for economic studies. Reputation studies are now a field by itself. It was started, um, well, uh, a long time ago. Darwin, for instance, knew very well about the effect of reputation. And he said that humans um, cooperate with each other not only because of a blind instinct like when ants are cooperating with each other, but because they are trying, because they are guided by the praise and blame of their fellow men. And so this was already singling out praise and blame, and this means the moral evaluation of a being through the reputation of that being. And uh, so the next one to pick this up was uh, Robert Trivers. He uh, wrote uh, a lot uh, about uh, tit-for-tat and other reciprocation uh, strategies, but he stressed also that this had to be seen in a more general way, not only in a, 
endlessly or for a very long time repeated interaction between the same two players, but that there was also a more general reciprocation, as he called it, be between players from one population who meet just once and have a one-off interaction. And this is based on the reputation of these players. He had already this idea, it was still further specified by the biologist Richard Alexander, who coined, I think, the name of indirect reciprocity and who thought that this was uh, the basis of moral systems. He wrote a very influential book on the biological basis of moral systems and he had this indirect reciprocity as a basis. And uh, then uh, Martin Novak and I, uh, I think, uh, worked out the first simple mathematical model about indirect reciprocation and uh, there are, uh, this has uh, had a remarkable success if I may say so and there are now very many uh, people, scientists, who have uh, uh, worked out uh, the many subtleties of this uh, idea of indirect reciprocity. But in addition to this reciprocal interaction, there is collaboration in more, in larger groups. Uh, collaboration uh, in groups of five or ten or hundred individuals. And this cannot be based on uh, reciprocation because, for instance, if you, uh, you find yourself in a group of three persons and one of your co-players uh, cooperates and the other doesn't, whom should you reciprocate with in the next uh, round? So this, this doesn't work. There, there must be an additional idea to this. Um, and this has been studied in uh, the context of public good games or of mutual aid games where you have groups of, to be specific, say five players and uh, they play several rounds where they can invest some effort, some money or some resources into a common good and this common good will then be shared by all of them. Uh, all of them, irrespective of uh, whether they have contributed or not. And so, so the idea, uh, for instance, is you have to collaborate if you want to hunt a mammoth. You cannot do it all by yourself, you have to work in a group. But if there are free riders in this group whose main idea is to stand, uh, not to be the first in line, so to speak, then you will not get the, the mammoth. However, if you get it, then uh, the free rider will be able to get his part of the stake, so to speak. And uh, so in, in these larger group interactions, in public good, good interactions, the problem of free riding um, occurs again. So uh, the way to, to sustain cooperation in larger groups is uh, to punish the free riders. Uh, public good of a public bus, for instance, uh, if, you, if you are free riding on this bus system and if you are caught, you're supposed to get punished and therefore you don't free ride. But this punishment can be meted out either by the co-players, those who participated in the game and feel that they have been cheated, or else it can be uh, meted out by an institution which has set up beforehand. So these are two very different ways of uh, punishing uh, free riders 
and uh, they have a certain historical interest because uh, maybe uh, 20 years ago um, game theorists uh, started to make experiments uh, showing that this punishing uh, free riders works very well but they set up the experiment in such a way that the players were punishing each other. This is called peer punishment, rather funny name. And it was shown that this is very effective. After a few rounds, everyone uh, notices that uh, if you exploit the others, you are likely to get punished and therefore you stop exploiting the others. But it is a, a costly system because punishing the co-player is a costly endeavor. And therefore there is a temptation not to do the punishing yourself, but to let other guys in your group do the punishing. And this sets up a free riding of second order, so to speak. And therefore uh, this uh, type of um, peer punishing, which is a kind of self-justice, uh, is quite likely to erode and to collapse. And there is a much more stabler situation which occurs when the players beforehand set up a contract or a hire a sheriff or uh, make a kind of institution whose aim it is to punish those who eventually will free ride. So this is a different thing. This is you set up a kind of police force beforehand Yes, of course, in our, uh, nowadays, this happens all the time. Whenever you make a collaborative enterprise, you go first of all to a lawyer, you set up some contracts, and if you break this contract, you are punished. But uh, the interesting thing is that this happens also in situations which are much more elementary. Uh, there is a Nobel Prize winning American uh, economist, sociologist, Eleanor Ostrom, who made a career in studying small-scale societies and showing of fisher or herders and so, or hunter-gatherers, and showing how there spontaneously, without any effect of the state or so, the, 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 uh, the agents uh, involved in an interaction set up some kind of very rudimentary institution whose task it is to uphold the public good and to uh, uh, punish those who are free riding and trying to exploit it. And uh, so this uh, idea has taken over. Nowadays it happens only, only very rarely that uh, people uh, uh, use uh, self-justice to punish uh, those who exploited them. It happens maybe uh, in, in situations, well, I don't know, in the Wild West or so, when there was no, no sheriff around, you had to do it by yourself, so to speak. And, but it is in general frowned upon as a very primitive uh, mechanism for upholding cooperation because it can lead to blood feuds and vendetta and so on. Yes, so th this, this honor system and this self-justice must have played an important role uh, in earlier times, but nowadays in modern civilization it is an idea that is frowned upon because it can so easily lead to a war of all against all 
uh, yes, you, you uh, think that the other guy uh, will exploit you, therefore you punish him and before he retaliates you anticipate this in turn and uh, therefore there is a kind of uh, mechanism leading to the escalation of conflict which can be very very harmful and it is much better to set up an institution which is above the players which is stronger than the players uh, and whose task it is to punish those who are free riding and breaking contracts this is a very very old idea it is the idea of the social contract which has been Hobbes and, and uh, Kant and Rousseau even older, even you find uh, in Plato, uh, in, in his Republic, he was already explaining this idea very clearly and concisely. But uh, in any case, this uh, idea that uh, spontaneously institutions can be set up uh, by the village elders or by some groups of uh, uh, players engaged in, in a, uh, in a collaborative enterprise, uh, this idea uh, is uh, very, uh, very rich and has attracted a lot of attention from anthropologists, for instance, and from economists, and uh, also from experimental economists. It has been shown that this works very well. Despite the fact that there is a paradoxical aspect in it, because you see, in an ideal world, where everyone eventually cooperates, uh, you still have to pay the police. And this seems that you are, because the police has to live from something, <laughs> yes. So this seems uh, needless and inefficient. Whereas uh, peer punishment, where you all only take the effort of punishing someone if this someone has done some bad thing, has been free riding, is less uh, inefficient in this sense. But uh, institutional punishment is stabler, despite the fact that it, in, it costs possibly more, it is far more stabler as an institution and cannot lead to this war of all against all. However, this uh, institutional punishment can in turn be subverted because those who are enforcing the law, which can be the sheriffs, the referees, the police officers, the law uh, officers, judges and so on, they can be bribed. They are also humans and they have also a selfish aspect to their nature and therefore there is a temptation for the free riders to bribe them in order to not to get punished. And this is, in my view, the, the hugest uh, problem with this institutional punishment. So the, the peer punishment, the self-justice punishment, uh, faces the problem of self-justice and war of all against all. And the institutional punishment faces the problem of corruption. And this problem of corruption is all uh, around us. So, let me stress that there are several aspects of corruption, uh, very many aspects of corruption. Uh, but the one that is most nefarious for economic life is uh, the 
corruption of the judiciary system or the corruption of the institutions whose purpose it is to punish the free riders. And uh, this is uh, by no means the only form of, of corruption, but it is uh, the one that is, uh, in my view, most harmful for economic development. And uh, I was so struck uh, first by simple graphs of uh, maps of Europe showing uh, the corruption perception index of the different countries and showing the mean household income of the different countries and how closely correlated this is. It is truly an amazing thing. And uh, I was also stuck by the fact that international companies, for instance, can very well refuse to set up say furniture stores or stores in, in some country for explicitly for the reason that these countries have such a huge corruption that the rule of law is not working. So this is an example how um, multi-billion dollar businesses shun actively certain countries because they cannot trust the, the judiciary system because they know that there is a remarkable risk that uh, the, the law will turn uh, in favor of those who exploited them and therefore they do not dare to set up contracts with uh, the people on the spot. This is uh, the type of uh, corruption that I have in mind. Amongst a huge amount of studies on corruption, the corruption of Southeast Asia is a very special topic, uh, which, which, uh, which is a world which I do not, uh, have not uh, penetrated yet. But in, in Europe, for instance, if you have this gradient, if the corruption index between, on the one hand, the Scandinavian countries and Switzerland, and on the other hand, the countries towards the east and the south, which is a quite a remarkable gradient that you can see, and the same gradient occurs in the, the average income in, the, uh, in these uh, economies. Uh, this type of corruption is uh, to a large extent uh, corruption of judiciary system, which can be uh, at a very basic level. For instance, if a policeman wants to stops you for uh, speeding and uh, if you give him something and he drops a fine, this is already a type of corruption. Uh, this uh, matter of a few dollars, but nevertheless, it is in some countries, it is uh, very, very widespread and it is symptomatic for a position of the society for uh, mis uh, disregard of the use of law, which uh, makes it plausible that on a higher level, when it comes to setting up big stores and joint enterprises or so, the same mechanisms could work. Uh, Austria, yes, has a... Uh, it, it could well be that uh, my interest has been stimulated by what is going on in my own country. It is... Uh, uh, disagreeable truth uh, that we are definitely faring less well on this corruption perception in index than the Swiss and even a bit less well than the Germans. 
uh, and this is uh, nagging and maybe <laughs> stimulating my interest in this corruption. But uh, still, um, I, um, I think that there is um, a difference between, uh, for instance, as a corruption of a minister who uh, makes a contract with some uh, some huge uh, fi fighter uh, with some aviation company uh, which uh, to, to, to buy some jet fighters or so, and uh, the corruption of the judiciary system. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this uh, uh, corruption of the judiciary system is the one, I think, that in the long run is more uh, deleterious to the average economic uh, success in a country than the enrichment of some uh, uh, a few ministers or uh, of uh, uh, which in general I mean after 10 years or so they are brought to law and uh, it does not uh, uh, does not last long well uh, corruption in general has a deleterious effect on uh, the readiness of economic agents to invest and leads in the long run to a paralysis of the economic life. But very often it is not that the economic agents have themselves had a bad experience and been cheated and ruined, but um, they just know that in this country or this part or of the economy or uh, in, in the building uh, um, scene, and so uh, there is a high likelihood uh, that uh, you will get uh, cheated and that uh, free riders can get away with it. So here again, this is uh, reputation is absolutely essential. And uh, that's the reason why um, transparency is so important. Uh, trust can only be engendered by transparency. This, in my view, no uh, coincidence that the uh, name of the most influential non-governmental organization um, dealing with corruption, the name is Transparency International. And of course this is well known that, uh, for instance, uh, uh, transparency through the freedom of the press or the Russians, the Soviet system uh, at the end introduced the glasnost, which is just another word for transparency and this led uh, to, uh, to a huge revolution and to the overcoming of the Soviet system. And other uh, mechanisms of reputation like naming and shaming uh, and so are also uh, playing a big role. But in any case, I think that this, uh, uh, the cost of acquiring information about the likelihood of corruption here or there about the reputation of the law officer or so must be sufficiently low. If it is too high, if you cannot uh, learn about this, then uh, you will more or less automatically distrust the system and be disinclined to invest there. And therefore transparency is uh, the, the, the most important uh, factor to fight this type 
of corruption, the corruption of the judiciary system. And uh, uh, this uh, uh, every effort of uh, uh, reducing this transparency, uh, for instance, by campaigns against whistleblowers or so, is something that should uh, let the alarm bells ring. 